Welcome, everybody, to this special event where we're live in conversation with James Hollis, PhD. This is presented by Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. I'd like to start by just introducing myself. My name is Ross McKeechee. I host the Banyan Books podcast, In Conversation. And I'd like to acknowledge that though there are people joining us from different parts of the world, Banyan Books and Sound in Kitsilano and Vancouver is located on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, which includes the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Another announcement, uh, Banyan is back to expanded store hours, so they're open every day of the week for in-store browsing, prepaid pickup, and mail orders by phone or online. And I encourage everyone to purchase the book we'll be discussing today, which is titled Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. And I encourage you to purchase it through Banyan. If you go to banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, and you'll be supporting a local independent bookstore that's managed to survive for 50 years. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. James Hollis, PhD, is a Jungian analyst, former director of the Jungian Society of Washington, DC. He is a professor of Jungian studies at Saybrook University, San Francisco, Houston. And he's the author of 16 books, including Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, The Eden Project, What Matters Most, and living an examined life. Today he's here with us speaking on his new book, Living Between Worlds. And he's an elder in this in this field and a, a man of wisdom at a time when we, we need it most. So please join me in welcoming James Hollis. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ross. It's a great pleasure to be with you, especially on the occasion of your 50th anniversary. In fact, uh, I've probably been to uh, Vancouver between 14, 15 times. My first two visits were sponsored by Banyan many, many years ago, and I fell in love with the city. And I want to um, salute that bookstore because it's it's not only a fine and varied bookstore, to survive in this particular era, as we all know, is extraordinary. So uh, thank you for inviting me to be with you today. And... uh, I look forward to our conversation. Thanks, Jim. Just to give everybody a little bit of an idea, Jim and I will be having a a conversation and I'll be asking him some questions about his new book and and other aspects of depth psychology. Um, And then there'll be a chance uh, for about half an hour at the end, we'll have a QA and a where all of you will be able to ask questions. So I'd like to start with asking you, Jim, You've written, this is your 16th book. What's what's your process when you're coming to writing a new book? Is there a moment of inspiration when you say, you know, here's what I need to write about? Or is it something that you kind of, you're always thinking about what's the next book? What's the next book? I never think about the next book. I'm always grateful the last one is finished because, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, 
it was uh, Thomas Mann who said, writing is an act that's especially difficult for those who are writers. So uh, for those who think it's easy to just sit down and do it, it's, it's not at all. Um, what, what happens for me is something begins to nudge me from within. And I can try to resist it for a while, but it keeps nudging. Um, and it's allied with, of course, what I'm seeing in people's dreams and, and what I'm encountering in the therapeutic hours, because I'm still a full-time working analyst. Um, but also, as I look at the world around us, because people are responding to that. So as you can well imagine, for the last three or four months, virtually every hour that I've spent with people is in some way about the impact of the virus upon their personal or professional lives. So we're, we're not exempt from the outer world for sure. But I, I would have to say that it's a, it's a process that I think seems to want to find its, its expression through me. Um, there are times I'd much rather, because I write in the evening after I've worked all day, so I'd much rather be able to sort of kick off my shoes and watch television or movie or something like that or read a good book. Um, <clears throat> and, but there's something there that keeps pressuring me. So I, I respond to it. And uh, I, I know it uh, sounds mysterious, but, you know, frankly, it is. And, and the key is, am, am I going to be responsive to that summons? Because I, I believe all of us, to some degree, uh, have these urgings from within for expression. Because without jumping too far ahead, I think the central question of the second half of life is what is wanting expression through me? If the question of the first half of life is uh, what does the world want to be? And do, can I mobilize enough ego strength to, to sort of meet its demands, step out into the world and create a life? In the second half of life, you have to ask other kinds of questions. Why am I here in service to what? And, and what's really meaningful for me? And um, so I, I think what wants to come into the world through us requires a certain measure of, of submission to it and, and, and discipline. So the books don't write themselves. And um, I have to sit here in the evenings when I'm tired, fatigued, uh, distracted, and stick to it. And, and that's how it happens. So uh, it's not a planned process. It's a received process. Wonderful. Um, you said you, you wouldn't mind being able to watch some TV or read another book. Reading your work, it seems like there's no shortage of reading going on in your life. You're constantly quoting literature, mythology, poetry. What is the role of, of literature, mythology, poetry in our personal work? What, how can we look to that? Well, my initial training was as an academic, and no surprise, my, my training was in literature and philosophy, and uh, I valued it very much. In fact, I have a chapter in this new book about why I think the study of literature is a better preparation for dealing with the human psyche than academic psychology is. Um, I know that's heretical, but I happen to believe it. Because um, literature and mythology um, are means by which the essential dilemmas and dynamics of the human character and our interaction with, with fate uh, play out over and over and over again. And if you want to know what is happening today at a depth level, you ironically need to study 
um, mythology, strange as that may seem, because um, what has not changed in all these millennia is the human psyche. Technology changes, social structures change, social values change. But in the long run, the human psyche is pretty much the same. You can find that in the ancient scriptures and you can find it in the ancient texts. And so I, I find the universal or archetypal, if you will, is most often expressed in those forms. And it gives a certain um, depth to it, a certain universality to it. And I think a certain respect for the essential mystery of it um, that academic psychology does not. Uh, as you know, or perhaps might not know, most of modern psychology is split into behaviors, which we certainly perform, uh, cognitive processes, which will go on within us at all times, and pharmacological processes, biological processes, all of which are true, but which put them all together doesn't add up to the human being. And so then you have to deal with some invisible issues, non-measurable issues, where you raise questions having to do with, for example, the problem of meaning. We are that animal that suffers disconnect from meaning and, and, and longs for meaning. And we can do all the right things as understood by our popular culture or all the right things according to our own predilection. And yet it doesn't feel right within. So... It's, it's, it's that kind of collision that occurs within us that produces symptomatology or psychopathology. And it's that which allows us to track back into our own depths to begin to see, all right, what is it the psyche wants of me? I know what the world wants of me. I know what my ego wants, but what does the psyche want of me? Not a question that we were ever raised with, but it's a way of, sort of reorienting ourselves and, and getting a sense of personal depth, dignity, and I think um, renewal of purpose. Mm. Your book is titled Living Between Worlds. Um, I want to uh, give a quote from chapter one that in a way encapsulates what this might mean and then maybe ask if you can expand on it. So you say... Why, having done the right things, do we feel bored, listless, depressed even, utterly without spark or animation of the soul? How many of us have then made foolish choices, seeking desperately to reanimate our lives, driven as Matthew Arnold expressed in his poem, The Buried Life, by a thirst to spend our fire and restless force? So when people find themselves at this place of hitting a wall and saying, I've done everything that I thought was expected of me, but it doesn't feel right. How can they begin to approach that? And is this what you mean by living between worlds? Well, that's one form of it. Um, I've also, and I'm going to come back to that question. I've also been interested from the beginning in how civilizations rise and fall, value systems rise and fall. There are moments of crisis in cultures, and we're going through some in the last century or so in the Western world. You know, as, as Marcel Arnold said in the 19th century, <clears throat> we wander between two worlds, one dead, the other powerless to be born. And 
you know, Yeats in 1917 writes that, that you know, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And he's, he's also experiencing this in-betweenness that occurs in civilizations. And we've been in one of those in-between times for sure. But intrapsychically, we do that frequently as our own psyche expresses itself and maybe protests where we've arrived or what are the conditions in which we're living our life. When I use the word psyche, I'm using it in the sense of the totality of who we are. And it's the Greek word for soul. And the moment you start talking about soul, you trigger people's complexes in positive and negative ways. But think about soul as the organ of meaning. Um, if, if what I'm doing with my life is inconsistent with my own internal nature, there's going to be a discrepancy. There's going to be a collision. There's going to be a symptomatology that rises from that. I use that word psychopathology a few moments ago. Um, psyche soul, pathos is suffering, logos is expression. So psychopathology is the expression of the suffering of the soul, which is puts a different spin on all of these things. In those moments, you begin to realize, oh, there's, there's something inside of me that is autonomously expressing a, a point of view, an opinion. I can override that. I can repress it. I can try to anesthetize that or medicate it. But it doesn't go away. It tends to escalate. And so it's when people feel this internal discord that they most common, commonly come into see a therapist. And, um, and the word therapy from the Greek, by the way, means to listen or attend to. So psychotherapy means listening or attending to your own soul, which is, you know, a kind of special invitation, I should think. And, and people may come in with discord in their marriage or in their career choices or something of that sort. But often it's not particularly about what it's about. The real question is, you know, am I living in some way in harmony with, with, with my own psychological reality? Because the forces of nature and the forces of social pressure, starting with the family of origin, are very powerful indeed. You know, as, as, as pointed out, we're, we're born whole. <laughs> Rousseau said we're, we're born free and everywhere or in change. We're born whole and governed by instinct, but we're tiny and vulnerable and dependent. So we have to start trading away that personal authority and, and adapting to the circumstances around us. And that's obligatory to fit into the world and function in the world. There's no way of avoiding that, really. But then what's the price of that? And what happens when the psyche been, begins to express its uh, disapproval? Then, then you have a summons, a kind of subpoena, if you will, to sort of show up and, and be accountable to your, yourself in a new and different way. Hmm. Personal authority is something that comes up a lot in your work. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, you say that one of the thing, three there's three things that, that we're summoned to come to. One is permission, personal authority, and personal aspiration. How do we how do we start to unravel the ways that we have given those away to outside forces and begin to reclaim those for ourselves? Well, we'll start with that one um, permission, first of all. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't have permission 
to live our own journeys. We think we do. We might be very, you know, expressive of our will in the world. We might be in powerful positions. We might have accomplished a great deal. But inward, there's always that conditional thing. But, But is this okay? Can I do that? So permission to own your own journey. I'm not talking about narcissism. Narcissism, pathology of a different kind. I'm not talking about self-absorption. In fact, it's quite the contrary. This is a humbling experience. It's like, how do I report to my own soul? Maybe in a new way. Maybe in a more difficult way than the life I've otherwise worked out. So the, the question really is in in all of this, uh, do I have really inherent permission to take seriously what is wanting to come into the world through me? Now, that's step number one. Step number two is the recovery of that personal authority, meaning by which we're bombarded by messages of all kinds. We're surrounded by we're, we're inundated on a daily basis by messages from the external world. And we've also internal messages of various kinds. There's a lot of traffic in there, busier than major airports at rush hour, a lot of incoming and outgoing traffic. But then at some point, we have to sit and, and, and pay attention and sort and sift through that traffic and say, which voices are coming from my own soul? And you can't necessarily trust your first response because they're often, again, the conditioned responses. And, and, and those are the kinds of dialogues, I think, that bring a person over time to a kind of recognition. This is what is wanting to be acknowledged from within me. Because ultimately, what this work is about is personal accountability. It's important for me to be accountable to my marriage, to my my children, to to my business colleagues, to my society. But I also have to be accountable to myself and what keeps spilling into the world through me, whether I'm (laughs) responding in a legitimate way or or reflexive responses to the world. And, And in addition, all of this, again, is a kind of summons to a different kind of conversation with oneself. I've often said to people, you know, this, you're not a disease. <laughs> There's no such thing as a cure. Life is difficult, and it ends with our mortality. And, and the key is, you know, is this journey interesting to you? Do you find that every day at some level there are important choices for you to make? We all get caught up and routinized structures and routinized behaviors for sure. But are you showing up as you? Not showing off, but showing up as you, which is a different animal altogether and often can lead us out of the known and the comfortable and and maybe cause some kind of sanction against us. And yet most of the people that we would admire historically, people who may have had very difficult lives, are people who somehow lived their way through to their own truth and embodied it in the world. Again, that's not self-absorption. That's a subordination of the wishes for perhaps a a normal life, a comfortable life, in service to what really wishes expression through them. So 
this is a, this is a lifelong process. It's not like we arrive there someday. You know, we go through various changes. I, I mentioned we have various kinds of, of um, beginnings and endings in our psyches constantly. So it's not like it's solved forever. Uh, it's sort of like saying I have a, a map of Ontario and I try to use it in British Columbia. Well, the map's not going to work very well. That happens to all of us at some level. We, we find up find ourselves, in a sense, trying to apply our understandings and our mechanisms and our conditioned responses to a new situation or to a, a, a new stage of the journey, and it doesn't work anymore. And that's when psychopathology occurs. And, you know, I'm, I'm hastening to depathologize psychopathology. It's, it's, it's our first clue that the psyche is weighing in on things rather than say, well, how quickly do I get rid of my suffering, my conflicts? I have to rather ask the question, why has it come? What does it want from me? That's a different agenda altogether. And when one does that, one engages in a, a different kind of conversation and one finds that one's life is truly interesting after all. And, and it's never finished, and it's never boring. It's, it's always in some way asking something of us. As we start this process of listening deeply to what our soul might be trying to bring into the world through us, in this modern world where we're inundated with external stimuli and the possibility for many, many addictions, how do we avoid the temptation to numb out? I want to give one quote you, you write about speaking of addiction in your book. If ever we are to triumph over an addiction, we must first be summoned to feel more consciously what we have already been feeling, suffer what seems insufferable, and live through this experience without the reflexive management system. How does this play into that? Like, as we start to listen more deeply to our soul, inevitably we might feel some of this suffering and the impulse to distract ourselves might even get stronger. How do we work with that? Well, an addiction is a reflexive anxiety management system. Now, each word there is important. Reflexive, meaning it's, we don't often think about it, but we, we engage in it without reflection. And its, its purpose, the payoff, if you will, is to try to manage the level of distress or anxiety that we're feeling. And everybody has addictive patterns. You know, a, a life of distraction is an addictive pattern. If, if I'm feeling troubled within, I can just sort of, you know, 24-7 be amused by the world outside of me. You know, Blaise Pascal in the 17th century noted that... Uh, the court, with all of its privileges, had to invent the court jester and all of the sort of circus to try to distract people, even the king, from reflecting of self. And he said, "All this is Pascal now in the 17th century. All of our difficulties stem from one source, the inability to be with ourselves within our private chambers. So one addictive pattern is to plug into something. And of course, 
as people through sequestering that has gone on in, in throughout the world have often found that their, their plugins, whether it's their friendships or social uh, occasions or their work assignments have been removed from them. And, and so that has, in a sense, caused a regression of that energy and often an enormous amount of internal distress, quite apart from whatever the dislocations of the outer world. But it's what it, you begin to see what kind of role it might play for distracting me or channeling my energies. So uh, another addiction that all of us have to some degree is, is habit. Mm. You, you notice, for example, when a newspaper arrives too late or, or the traffic is heavier and you're going to be late for your appointment, that the energy that rises is, is disproportionate to the situation and you realize, well, okay, habit is my way of reminding myself um, of my great efforts to impose upon the unpredictability of life, the chaos of life, if you will, some ordering process. And we all have habituated actions. I'm not criticizing and I'm just saying that too can be a kind of a buffer, if you will, helping protect us from feeling what we feel. So any, any addiction is in some way seeking to anesthetize or, or in a sense distract from feeling what we're already feeling inside. And if I think that I want to break the hold of an addiction, then I have to engage in what can be a heroic struggle that essentially says, all right, I'm not going to engage in that reflexive response, but simply sit with myself and feel what I'm already feeling and go through it. Sounds easy, but it's not easy at all. That's why addictive patterns are so hard to, to, to break. But it means in a certain way being accountable to what my psyche is really going through. And this is why addictions to food and alcohol and drugs and all other kinds of things, even work, can be ways of, of anesthetizing and distracting from one's core anxieties, from fear, from boredom, um, from feeling the need to be nurtured by something. These are not federal crimes. These are human emotions and human encounters. But if the cost of the reflexive behavior is sufficient, then I realize, okay, I, I can't afford to do that anymore. I mean, one of our most common addictions, of course, is, is eating food. We all have to eat. And food itself is simply matter that fuels the engine the same way you know, petrol fills our gasoline tanks and our automobiles. What projections do we make upon food? And, and, and how is it we use it to uh, soothe ourselves? And how is it, you know, beyond our caloric needs on a daily basis? You see, when you begin to move beyond that into the realm of, of, of you know, the management system, that's where the addiction is found. Hmm. So we've sort of set the stage here in terms of this idea of living between worlds, I'm my, there's a deeper calling from my soul. I see that I'm at a point in my life where the old way is no longer working. We're speaking, of course, the personal journey of being in between. 
now in the book you go on to look at the idea of healing and uh how do, how is healing defined in depth psychology for our audience to understand well <clears throat> nature heals we don't as a therapist i don't heal i try to sit with a person in his or her suffering, conflict, disappointments, um, and, and hold that together in some way and try to see what purpose Psyche has in this process to see, if possible, what compensations or different behaviors might be helpful in reorienting one's life. And if, if our, my behaviors and if my, my thought process and the expenditure of my energies is more consistent with the agenda coming from within, I, I am going to experience some healing. Uh, it's clear to me the human psyche has two essential needs and two essential agendas, and that, that is healing and um, development and growth. You know, the ego is a very conservative um, sort of organ, so to speak. I mean, its purpose is important to help us interface with the external world. That's, that's something we can't avoid. But when it inflates itself and thinks it's the boss, then it's ignoring some other realities. Or when it's simply operating under the influence of external pressures or complexes that have been triggered intrapsychically then it's really a captive state. So the, the question then is always, and this is not a question again that we were ever raised to consider, is what does the psyche want? What does the soul want from us? That's a different matter. And asking that is at least the first step. We may not know the answer to that, but I can guarantee you that will unfold if you keep asking it in a serious and disciplined way. And that's part of what depth psychology is about. So we, we try to pay attention to uh, autonomous forms that help inform us what is right for us. The feeling function. We don't choose feelings. Feelings are autonomous. You, you, your ego can choose to ignore them, to repress them, to anesthetize them, project them onto others. But they are qualitative analyses of how things are going. Feeling decisions are made long before we understand them as, as thoughts. They're already a qualitative response. That, that's important to know that. There's a qualitative analysis going on autonomously. Energy systems, another one. We can mobilize our energy and service to all kinds of duties, like getting up to feed the baby at two in the morning, and, and we need to do that. And at the same time, if we keep mobilizing our energies in the wrong directions over time, we all know it leads to boredom, depression, burnout, self-medication, etc. So the key is where do those energies want to go? So when we're tracking what is right for us, um, the energy is there. So as I, I mentioned, I'm right at the end of a long, long day. <clears throat> My ego would like to sort of take off and turn off, if you will. But once in the process, the energy rises, which is one of the clues for me, Something, in a sense, begins to carry me through that process. I think you've all had that experience one way or the other. And, and when that happens, then you know in some way you're in harmony 
with your own psychological reality. Thirdly, in depth psychology, we pay attention to dreams. Um, we dream on an average of six times per night. And I know people say, well, I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams or I don't dream that much. Well, we do. Um, and if we pay attention to them, we, we begin to realize, okay, there's some center of, of consciousness, if you will, some agency that is autonomously responding to my life and commenting upon it. And maybe its comments are opaque and, and hard to understand at times. But if you work with them over time, you begin to realize there's another locus of knowing in us. A source maybe of natural wisdom, what Jung called the two million year old person in us, that listening to over time begins to, to give me that sense of personal authority. Because dreams, uh, in a sense, do critique our lives and do offer pathways. I could literally sit here and provide you with dozens of people's dreams through the decades in which the, a particular dream is, is so illustrative of what's going on in their life and, and maybe what needs to be challenged or maybe what pathway needs to be followed. And then fourthly is the issue of meaning, as I mentioned. It's the most elusive of all. But when something is meaningful, um, we inherently feel the rightness of it. As Jung pointed out once, the smallest of things with meaning is always richer than the largest of things without meaning. And that's why we can achieve the wealth of the world or positions of privilege and, and so forth and still feel empty inside. If the pursuit of material gain made us happy or had some kind of abiding satisfaction, I think you'd see it because there are enough people who have accomplished that. What you rather see often is a kind, again, addictive effort to repeated in some way, which leads to a form of emotional sterility, or on the other hand, a kind of constant search for gratification or for distraction, because one can struggle to get there and find that there's no there there when you get there. So these autonomous functions of feeling, energy, dreams, and, and, and meaning are parts of how our psyche is speaking at all times. In other words, we're swimming in clues, if you will. We're not absent as to guidance from our own souls. But again, as children and as emergent youth, we had to subordinate that conversation to, to deal with the world. And again, those trade-offs lead to various kinds of self-estrangement and that's what healing is about, is, is trying to overcome self-estrangement and have a different kind of, of, of response. This doesn't pull us away from the world. It, it helps us come back to the world, to our relationships, to our children, to our, our functions in society with a more evolved and more conscious um, presence than we would have if we were simply persons of... of um, of uh, reflexive response. I'd like to bring it to um, an example from your personal life, if I can, of mm -hmm. being at a point of living between worlds. 
where I understand you were 35 years old, you had a great career as an academic, you were married, and and yet there was some something from your psyche, from your soul, that was calling for a new direction to live in a new world. Can you tell us a bit about how that played out in your life? Well, certainly. <clears throat> it was a typical midlife encounter. Um, and by the way, they don't have to be limited to the famous midlife crisis. Um, they can occur at any point where there's a substantial psychosocial uh, change in our lives. It could be, you know, being downsized at work or people are going through depressions right now because of the loss of income, for which I have the deepest sympathy, and the loss of those plug-ins that I was talking about, or aging or divorce or death in one's family or one can awaken at three in the morning and have this sense of, of I don't know who I am anymore or that sense of I don't know who I am apart from my role so by age 30 I had done everything I was supposed to do and it was good and rich and valuable and I enjoyed it and at the same time um, from about 33 on I began to feel a kind of protest from within, and it led to a serious midlife depression. So I entered my first analytic session at midlife, age 35, right on schedule. I didn't think of myself starting the second half of my life, but I certainly was, a different kind of journey altogether. And it was out of that process that led me to ultimately say to myself, well, um, this this is so interesting and fascinating to me. I'm, I'm going to continue to be in academia for a while, but I, I traveled to Zurich. That's the background you see behind me is, is downtown Zurich, the old part of Zurich. And I, I was there uh, for up to six years in analytic training, came back, left a tenured position in academia and uh, started an analytic practice continued teaching by way of books and lectures and courses and that sort of thing. But um, I, I think that first half was necessary. Um, you know, I think I've said to people in various audiences, and they think I'm joking, but there's a truth to it. The first half of life is by and large a just gigantic but unavoidable mistake. Unavoidable. Go ahead and do it. Try it out. See what you find out. But then at some point, you're, you're, you're going to hit a wall. And two things have to have happened then. One, you have to have developed enough ego strength to bear looking at yourself. One of the reasons I left academia wasn't a lack of interest in teaching. But I realized when you're talking to 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, there's nothing wrong with being that. We all were. There's, there, there, there's not enough ego strength and, and maturation yet to bear that kind of self-examination. They might be very bright and willing, but talk to a 40-year-old and you'll have a different kind of conversation. And secondly, you'll have some terrain to look at. You'll have some history to look at. And so the young person may be full of fears, apprehensions, uh, plans, and so forth. But at some level, they haven't got a clue as to where they're headed or what they're doing. So you have to go out in there and into the world, form the relationships, jump into a job, et cetera, et cetera, and then resurface later. 
particularly when the discrepancy inside becomes uh, urgent. And it's at those moments that one then begins to realize, oh, well, I'm called to some kind of accountability here uh, to to the inner life, as, as I've already mentioned. So for me, it was not a decision overnight. It was more about attending a process. When I first started in personal analysis, I thought, um, I'll continue in academia the rest of my life. Slowly, I began to appreciate the kind of conversation that could come out of that process and to realize I wouldn't spend more of my life in that kind of conversation with people. And, and it was not necessarily a pleasant kind of conversation. Academia, academia was always pleasant to me because I enjoyed the play of ideas. But the world I work in is also an engagement with human suffering. And, and that's not necessarily a, a pleasant thing. I've often said that the goal of life is, is not happiness, it's meaning. I have nothing against happiness, but it's not a steady state. It's, it's the byproduct of being in right relationship with your own soul at a particular moment. So I don't enjoy my work, but it fills me with happiness meaning I, I don't enjoy being present to suffering and watching people go through difficult decisions in their lives. But I can't imagine a better way to spend my life. So it's that which animates me, which gives me a sense of, of purpose. So again, all I did at the time was respond to the promptings of the psyche. And frankly, the psyche had to be... Um, irritated enough, I think, to keep poking uh, until I I paid attention. So I I think all of us have a kind of invitation to show up, not necessarily in a formal therapy, but but show up in some way to a conversation with ourselves, however you propose to do that. And uh, certainly as a therapist, I have the privilege of working with people who have shown up for their appointment um, one way or the other. Wow, Jim, I, I can't believe it's already been 40 minutes we've been talking and, um, you know, leading up to this, I watched some of your interviews and of course read a lot of your work and your books are all very short and to the point and yet I found that every page took me five or 10 minutes to read to really absorb how much is there. And I'm finding the same with this conversation. There's just so much richness in what you're saying. Uh, And I wish we could speak for longer, but we want to give the audience a chance to ask questions as well. So I wanted to just ask you um, about more the, the big picture, the macrocosm right now in terms of living between worlds. Uh, Of course, everybody knows there's a lot happening in the world, a lot of change afoot. Where do you see that we're at as a collective with all of this? What are the big shadow things we need to address or the collective unconscious issues that are are coming to light right now? And how do we navigate that? Well, those are huge questions. And I think one of the um, sort of emotional and intellectual questions that I've been interested in really from the beginning is, is about the problem of meaning. And, and to see how entire civilizations get organized around certain controlling metaphors or certain controlling images or structures. 
and they 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 serve that or or are served by it for a certain length of time until that metaphor or structure or value system has lost its energy and it disintegrates. And so periodically, I began the book by talking about how over two millennia ago, a terrible rumor swept the Mediterranean that the God, and it caused panic. And that was that the God Pan had died, you know, which may not have troubled you, but Pan, Pan represented the grounding in the world of instinct and was being replaced by civilizations and, and the claims that social agencies make upon all of us. As, as Freud put it so succinctly, price of civilization's neurosis because you have the agenda of your own body and soul, but there's also the agenda of the world around you. So the, the issue then is what happens when things fall apart, the center cannot hold. As, as Yates put it, and, and individuals are thrown into a time of disorientation. And, and we've been going through that periodically for, uh, you know, millennia. But particularly, I think, since the 19th century. And that's been the erosion, first of all, of what we'll call tribal mythologies and their power to connect people with the mysteries of cosmos, of nature, of the tribe and of self-direction and, and of the powers of sacred institutions to perform those functions too. They still do to some degree for many people, but for many, many others, um, they've, they've lost that connective and meaningful uh, linkage to what guides your life. And so people then have been thrown back upon the resources of popular culture. And the response of popular culture has been pretty clear, materialism, that the good life is found in consumer goods. Uh, and certainly they give us more pleasure in life, but do they ultimately serve our souls or do we wind up serving them in some way? Uh, narcissism, self-absorption, um, hedonism, you know, a search for pleasure. Or, or other isms like nationalism and, and, and so forth. Now, these are the secular surrogates for a, a life that connects people to the deep rhythms of nature and to the cosmos. And, and Jung said, at the end of the 19th century, deaf psychology had to be invented because of this eroding power. Had to be invented, strange phrase, but it's a response to in 1862, uh, Emily Dickinson uh, produced a rather interesting aphorism. She said, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. And I think that was her recognition of the erosion of those connective institutions and tribal systems. And, and saying, basically, in the world to come, you're going to have to find a compass. If you have a compass and you can consult it and trust it, you can find your pathway through the thicket of choices, through the fog on the dark sea that we travel at times. And if you can't, you're going to be adrift and you'll be subject to the largest prevailing forces around you. So we, we've always lived between worlds, so to speak, but, but we're living particularly as, as cultures in, in times, for example, 
one of the things I touch on briefly in, in the book is the emergent world of, of technology, which often now governs our lives and the development of AI, artificial intelligence, and, and the implications of that and the capacity of that gift, which has helped us all, including the instrument through which we're, we're communicating today, is also quite at the mercy of agencies, governments, and so forth that can use and control uh, that flow of information and manipulate us in profound ways, commercial ways and, and political ways and religious ways and, and, and so forth. So no one can talk about the future because we don't know. All we can talk about is certain trends. And I think what it does do is increase upon all of us, the responsibility for personal governance, all right? As, as the outer world becomes more sort of pressed upon me and, and a little crazier by the hour, so to speak, um, where do I come from? What, 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 is, what are the ways in which I find my pathway? And am I living a life that makes sense to me? in the world as it is, because I don't get to choose what world I'm in or choose, you know, the, the dictates of that world, but I still have to find my path. So we're all affected by the world outside of us. And the whole project of modernist literature and modern, modernist culture was the critiquing of those tribal mythologies and sacred institutions and so forth. And then the question is what replaces them? You know, and that's why I say materialism, hedonism, narcissism, and so forth are the secular answers to that. But then we'd have to say, well, how well have they worked? And do they help link people in felt ways and meaningful ways to each other and, and to nature and, and, and to their own journeys? And I think the question, the answer there is pretty obvious. Wow. Okay, thank you. So we'll open it up now for questions. I'm just going to do a quick scan here in the Q&A section. We'll go in order. Now, the first question comes from Catherine Swift. She says, can the pursuit of meaning also be a habit or addiction or even an excuse to not be present with life? Well, I think it's a misunderstanding because if you think the pursuit of meaning is going to take you away from the world ultimately, then, then yes. Um, rather, I think, and I already suggested this, I think what it does do is bring you back to this world, to the quality of intimate relationship, to better parenting. For example, Jung said once, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. Well, that's a very profound summons to me as a parent, now a grandparent, of course, to, to realize I've got a journey to make. And the ability to do that or the risk of doing that is something that frees up and provides a different kind of model for those who follow me. That's why I keep emphasizing this is not about narcissism and self-absorption because the meaning of your life is going to be found where you're supposed to be spending your energy. Maybe it's through the work of your hands. 
Maybe it's through the quality of your interpersonal relationships. Maybe it's in your creative process. You know, maybe it's in social causes. It is different for all of us. That's why we can't sit here and say, well, this is what you should do with your life. You know, the analyst never says to somebody, this is what you should do with your life. That's too direct. We have to rather attend a process whereby something of that begins to emerge from within and then say, now let's, let's see what are the obstacles to you to do that, both external and internal? Let's address those. Consciousness can help there. But ultimately, as I suggested, there has to be some kind of submission to accountability to what wishes that expression through us. And, and in doing that, you improve your, your engagement with the world. This is very much a present oriented. We don't dwell on the past. We understand the past is always spilling into us in any given moment. When I perform an action, where is that even coming from and from my ancestral past? Where is that coming from the history of my personal journey and my, my complexes? If I don't ask a question like that, I'm just flying blind. You know, that's not self-absorption. It's, it's, a, it's an exacting discipline that says, all right, but, you know, let's say if I do an, a particular act, which I think is a good thing to do. Well, what was it in service to inside? That's a different question. And maybe it's come from an old conditioned place. Maybe it was a fear-based response. Maybe it's codependence. Maybe it's trying to win approval from somebody. I mean, when I begin to ferret those things out, then I become more responsible as a citizen and as a partner. And, and I become, in a sense, summoned to, to do something about that. And, and so it's a good question. And I, but I think it's important to realize this is about bringing a more qualitative presence back into the world. It's not a flight from it or an addiction or a self-serving kind of, um, of process. Thank you. Now, this leads into a question from Paul Shaker. He says, would you expand on how to discern which voice to listen to? Well, that's, a, that's the $64 question. Back when $64 was a lot of money, um, it's an ancient process. Um, I think in one of the Gospels, Jesus talks about testing the spirits. I think that was a recognition over two millennia ago that uh, there's a lot of traffic in there. And that's why I say sort and sift, sort and sift over time. And, and I can tell you, and I mean this quite literally, if I have a decision to make, even if I'm talking about solving a writing problem or something like that, or a life concern, I sort of put it inside, if you will. And down below in the lower regions here, in the solar plexus, there's a whole group of people in there. They work 24 seven. And they work on these things and they always get back to me sooner or later. Now it won't be on my desk by five as I'd like to have it, but um, they'll give me a dream three days from now or I'll wake at two in the morning and there it is what I'm looking for. I have clarity about. 
And, and that's something I've learned through the years, often the hard way. Something inside always knows what is right for us, but you have to put it in there and you don't trust the first things that come out of it because the first things that come out will be the ready rationalizations designed to legitimize, to ratify the old behaviors in service to the old agendas. That's why growth and change are so difficult. But in time, you keep saying, but what's going on here, really? Keep that dialogue open and something inside will, will respond. Now, I'm sure many who are watching will have had similar kinds of experiences that um, you, know, you, you worried about something and, and then it came to you. Um, and you may or may not have acted upon it, but something inside of you knew the rightness of that. And, and it's in those moments that we realize something in us always knows what's right for us. May not be politic, may not be comfortable, may not help us fit in, but it's right for us. And what happens if we keep violating that? That's the problem. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Lori Anderson. She says, thanks for this thought-provoking talk. How do you view the current focus on racial justice, Black Lives Matter, white supremacy, police brutality, through the lens of your work? Well, first of all, when we talk about complexes, what we're really talking about are our histories charged with certain kinds of energy. We have complexes, clusters of history that are there because we all have a history. And many of those come from our social structures. When I was a child, my parents firmly believed that certain social structures were either God-given or in the nature of nature. And later we've come to realize that they are social constructs. And that is to say, human creations. And as we've deconstructed their received authority, then, then we began to realize, oh, we're freer than we thought we were. Things are more open than we thought. But that world gave clarity and order and predictability and, um, you know, ostensible meaning. You knew your, your marching orders. So my parents and your grandparents probably were defined by gender roles and gender limitations. And how many good souls were deformed by, by those strictures? They're terrible strictures for women and for men both. So too, social constructs like racial categories. And this is one of the most insidious of all. The, the, the thought that one person can feel superior to another person. Anyone who's conscious can never feel superior for the simple reason that we recognize how much stuff we have to deal with, how much we have to, to be ashamed of, or how much we have to, to be accountable for. If I'm just honest about that, I'm not going to feel better than somebody else. I've got my own stuff I have to, to deal with. And, and racial categories have been around, of course, for a very long time because they allow us in some peculiar way 
to see overtly the differences between us. And therefore, all that I've disowned in myself, what Jung would call the shadow, is put out on the other person. The shadow represents those parts of our personality that when we bring them to consciousness, we find troubling about ourselves. We, we don't want to own within ourselves. We don't want to think we're petty or jealous or, or violent or lascivious or, or greedy. Um, and so what we disown, we find in other people, of course. And, and in that, of course, is, is, a, is a certain kind of defensive posture. So then I have to realize something like racism is arising out of people's profound insecurity or homophobia is another good example. Complete insecurity around their own identity, their own grounding. Now, there's an irony here, and that is if I feel in some way I've taken on my own journey and I'm doing the best I can and I'm, I'm responsible for that sustained kind of conversation and self-analysis, I'm not going to have time to judge other people. I'm not going to be bothered by what they do or how they appear or whatever. I've got my own stuff to work on. There's a big pile of it. That's never finished. So in, in some way, things like these social constructs and categories and up to and including bigotry of all kinds, it's really unfinished business. Because the question ultimately is, what do I have to look at within myself? That's my responsibility uh, to myself and to everybody around me, starting with my immediate family. I've always been moved by uh, Philo of Alexandria over two millennia ago, who said, be kind. Everyone you meet has a really big problem. If I remember that, I'm more likely to see them with the eye of sympathy than the eye of judgment. They have a really big problem and a hard struggle in life like us. And if I remember that, I'm not going to be feeling superior. I might, in fact, feel a degree of empathy and try to be less of the problem in this world to them. Um. We have another 15 minutes left and we've got lots of questions here. So I'm going to go to another one. Beatrice Donald asks, perhaps the second half of life can happen more than once. For example, in the 30s, then later even in the 70s as a result of a loss that mobilizes reassessment. I wonder what Dr. Hollis thinks about this. Absolutely. I fully concur. And when we talk about the second half of life, we're, we're not talking so much chronologically as those moments in our life. And I did say earlier today, I think these things happen frequently and will come to us in different venues. Um, we're all familiar with the empty nest syndrome where children leave and one realizes how much of my self-identity, not to mention outer expenditure of energies, been tied up in, in child rearing and so forth, well spent. But then one needs to say, oh, well, that's good. They're on their, their pathway. That's the way it was supposed to be. Now, that energy has come back to me. And what am I going to do with it? I, I have to be responsible for that energy now. Um, ironically, 
uh, I had a long period of, of not writing. And when my daughter finished uh, graduate school and drove through town en route to Texas to start a new life, I, I felt that very much. And I, I said to myself, this is a, a, a dirty trick that therapists play on themselves, but it would be useful to you. What would I say to another person who brought this to me? And it was very clear. I said, you know, that energy is, was well spent. There she is, free young woman, terrific. It's come back to you now. What are you going to do with it? And while she was driving across the country at that point, about 1,800 miles, I sat down and I started writing the middle passage, quite literally. I thought, I'm going to take that energy from investing in the growth of a child and children and, and put it in another direction. And that's another kind of parenting, if you will. And there are various venues, and I mentioned, we can have a depression at any stage of the journey. And when you stop and think about a depression, although sometimes there are depressions driven by biological sources, sometimes depressions are appropriate reactions to a significant outer loss, like the death of a partner or, or loss of a, of, of a loved one or a career or something like that. And it's only, quote, problematic when it goes on too long and lasts too long and it's too consequential. However, most of the time, our depressions are intrapsychic expressions. And if you stop and ask this question, why has the psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from our agendas, the agenda that, you know, the executive committee up here is running? Then you begin to realize, oh, I'm invited to a different kind of conversation. This is not very comfortable. It's humbling to sort of say, now, I know what the outer world wants from me, and I know what all my internal tapes mean to tell me to do. What is the psyche wanting from me? And, and that's the only way through a depression. And so underneath all of that, you see, is, is, is one essential question. Am I living the journey I'm supposed to be living? And then you say, well, who says so? Well, right there, you have the problem of authority, don't you? And when you have the problem of authority, if it's, if it's not something you work through to find your own personal authority, you're going to be obeying of the authority of somebody else. So there are various nodules through which we go all the way through, including dealing with aging, dealing with illness, dealing with limitations of the body, dealing with our imminent mortality, all of these things are, are likely to precipitate in us significant questions about identity, roles, directions, agendas. And I would submit to you, this is healthy, this is good stuff, because each one of them is an invitation to go back to the drawing board. See, now the ego's not thrilled with that because the ego wants to say, well, I thought I had figured that all out. But, um, you know, that, that's not nature speaking. <laughs> nature is about change and evolution. Um, it's the ego wanting to have its cake and eat it too and to say basically, you know, what I think is what I you know, is my reality. And the world I've constructed around me is all that I, I need to do. When in, when in fact, the, the psyche and the world may come to us in, in quite different ways. 
So I don't say this is lightly. These are experienced often and as painful moments. But part of what I do as a therapist is to sit with the process with individuals and, and hold things together in a caring but disciplined way that says, all right, now we don't see where the new is. We're in this in-between time. My, my first title for this book, not a very sexy title, but a descriptive title was In Between Times. Oh. We live in in-between times historically and we live in in-between times intrapsychically frequently. And holding things together uh, while waiting upon the new to emerge can be a very difficult process. And sometimes, frankly, that could be years even. But in that process, something new is always forming and, and wanting to grow and develop. Uh, Yates wrote once in, in the midst of some conflicts he was going through, um, and especially dealing with the ailments of the body, he said, soul sing, clap hands and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. So what he was saying is for every outer diminishment, there has to be some kind of concomitant internal development in lieu of that outer diminishment. Because life's a series of attachments and losses, attachments and losses. And that's just the nature of nature. But, but in a sense, for every outer loss, there has to be something inside of us that grows to meet that. And, and that's one reason why we, we have a steady job. You know, we never, we never end the process of having to face our lives and, and say, and what's the next stage for my development? What is the challenge I have to face in this? And how do I go about that? The journey doesn't end, as you say, towards the end of your book. No. We have another question from Sharon. Apologize if I get your name, last name wrong, Sharon. Sharon Abondanza. She says, firstly, thank you for your profound work and for illuminating the inner journey. Could you speak to how to dismantle the deepest resistance when we face the tragedy of addiction and resulting death of a loved one? Well, um, there are things the heart never gets over. Um, we've, many of us have lost, lost loved ones. I've lost my dear and younger brother. I've lost my parents, um, other loved ones. Most of all, I've lost my cherished son. And um, you, you never get over that. I, I hate that word closure. It's as if you can say, oh, well, that's finished now. There's no closure. What you do is you go on, but you go on in a new way. And you go on um, honoring the things that you value about those relationships. There isn't a day that I don't think about my parents and, and the difficult life they had to live and about my brother and about my son. And, and I am reminded of the responsibility and the privilege of still being here and the accountability that that, that brings to me. So you, you go forward 
honoring the value that you found there. And, and the terrible pain of knowing if, to use the person's example here, if, if they were in the midst of an addiction, they were in the midst of a great deal of suffering. And we, we grieve that uh, greatly and recognize the addiction was their self-treatment plan. They were trying to fix that in the way that seemed to be available at the moment, albeit with negative consequences. And it's, it's, it's to be grieved. Um, you know, grief comes from our same word from which we get, it comes from gravis, from which we have the word gravity. It's heavy, something that weighs on the soul. And the only true pathology around that is denial. People who just sort of roll on and never stop and reflect upon it. And at the same time, each of us has our own appointment with destiny. One thing we all need to remember as parents and loved ones of other loved ones, and I as a therapist have to always remember this, every one of us has a different destiny. We have a different life trajectory. As much as we might like to, we can't live someone's life for them. We can't necessarily protect them from harm. Um, we, we can't, in a sense, take on uh, the burdens of their destiny. It's enough to take on ours. And so to, to remember, on the one hand, or I don't say this in any morbid way, the great democracy of the grave, which also comes from Gravitz, is to recognize we're here a short time, as, as Jung put it, you know, life is a short pause between two great mysteries. That's a pretty good definition of life. And then the key is to say, all right, and how have I lived that short pause? Did I show up as a, as a person, as myself here, at least once in a while? And, and to, to recognize that, which, which means then one is not necessarily sucked under the undertow of the grief for those whom we've lost. And at the same time, every day to remember is part of to understand the a burden of attachment and loss and also to be recalled to those values that we share. But thirdly, to live your journey. That doesn't obviate your journey. You know, our ancestors had a very tough journey. Our, we have so many privileges and creature comforts, but we all have a destiny to face and to try to try to live into as, as best we can. When you're doing that, you're back in life and not owned by death. Jim, we, I think we've got time for two more questions. It's just 12 minutes after 12 here. Um, and I'm sorry, everyone, we can't get to all of your questions. I'm going to give you one, Jim, that might be a little bit more of a challenging question uh, from Jean Sarazen. She said, in the book, you share the personal mantra that you use to ride the elevator down to your car every morning. The mantra mm -hmm. is shut up, suit up, show up and even suggest we might want to take it on for ourselves. Perhaps it is the tone of the narrator of the audiobook version that I'm listening to, but those six words come across for me as being rather harsh. 
is this a form of tough love you're using towards yourself? I want to ask, where is your self-compassion when you speak this way to yourself? Well, yes, very good question. <laughs> Let me just sort of explain that for folks who are not uh, privy to what she was referencing. I, I live in a four-story condo building in Washington, and there are two floors below in the basement where cars are parked. And so as I, you know, when I'm going to the office, which I'm not doing right now because of the virus, but when I go to the office, and I, I do it otherwise here, I remind myself every morning because, you know, there's always a whiner in each of us, okay? So I say to myself these six words, shut up, suit up, show up. And what do they mean? First of all, shut up. You know, you have problems. Yeah, that comes with life. Um, there are people who have real problems. They don't have a home tonight. They don't have food today. Their children are being murdered. You don't have problems. Shut up. Suit up means prepared, work hard, do what you need to do to meet life's demands. No whining, no complaining. And thirdly, show up. All you can do is just do your best. Perfection's a, a stupid idea. We never achieve it. Just do your best. That's where that sense of grace and, and forgiveness comes in. Um, I've always loved the definition of grace by the theologian Paul Tillich, who said once, accept the fact that you're accepted despite the fact that you're unacceptable. In other words, the paradox is we're all screw-ups in life, okay? We all fall short of our possibilities. Welcome to the club. But that doesn't excuse us from showing up as best we can today and tomorrow and the next day. And in the middle passage, I mentioned, for example, the two gremlins at the foot of the bed, fear and lethargy. There's that little creature at the foot of the bed. You better pay attention because they're there every morning. It says, you know, life's too much for you. You, you. you can't handle it, okay? And that's the forces of intimidation from the world around you. And it's the enemy of life. And the second one is lethargy. Oh, fall back into the sleep of unconsciousness. Turn on the television and have some chocolate. Tomorrow's another day. Those are the real enemies of life. Life is difficult, but the real enemies are inside of us. Fear and lethargy. And there's where the real struggle is. And showing up means living in the face of your fears. It's okay to have them fears. You can't avoid them. Only psychotic people are fearless. And at what price that's achieved. And, 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 and secondly, just be here as best you can. That's, that's what we have to do. So that model, which you may not want to adopt for yourself and create your own, is simply a reminder for me to um, pay attention. And uh, today is another opportunity to live it more fully. And, um, you know, it's... I mean, I could, I suppose, hire somebody who would come along and hit me every hour and say, hey, wake up and remember, okay? But in lieu of that, I'm, this is my way of reminding myself. That's great. Thanks, Jim. And, and our final question, there's a lot of good ones here, so apologies that we couldn't get to everyone's. This one's from Robert Chioti or Robert Chioti. He says, I heard you talk in Toronto about your book, Swamplands of the Soul, in the late 80s. 
you spoke about the difficulty people have in coping with the ambiguity of life. It seems we are suffering from a need for certainty, i.e. who is right, who is wrong, as a way of feeling safe in these uncertain times. Can you comment on inner wisdom or psyche's urgings that direct us to a rightness that is not either or? That's a very good question. The human ego, as I mentioned, is a necessary tool to help us interface with the external world, but um, it, it really is rendered tremendously uncomfortable by ambiguity. It prefers the predictable, understandably. It prefers the comfortable. It preserves order. It preserves the fantasy of being in charge of life. And anything that is ambiguous unsettles it. That's why the more threatened, the more imperiled, or the in, more immature the ego, the less it's capable of tolerating the fact that real important issues aren't always ambiguous. There are very few things where a clear right and wrong is, is obvious. Very few things. The real issues of life are complex and are ambiguous. And, and there's that part in us, and I'll call it our inner fundamentalist, whether it's religious or political or psychological or whatever, that says, but I want to, to know, and I want these things to be black and white, and I want clear marching orders, and I want to know who the good people are and the bad people, and obviously I'm in the former category, and, 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 and I, 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 I want certainty. I remember as a young person, I thought if I worked hard enough, learned enough, I would find certainty in my life. And what I began to find as early as college was I was being led to more and more unsettling questions. But in time, I came to realize it was exactly that that gave me the journey. The journey is, is as you live the essential mystery of life, Whatever is certain today, frankly, you're probably going to outlive by tomorrow or the next day. And what is certain these days can become the prison of the future times. The most important thing I learned in my time of training and analysis in Zurich was, in a certain way, shattering, but illuminating um, back there. And is with me still. What, have you, what you have become is now your chief obstacle. That is to say, we become a set of attitudes, of marching orders, of, of, of complexes, of understandings of self and other. And the irony is, while they were necessary, maybe honestly earned, today are also constrictive. You know, as, as Shakespeare suggested, no prisons are more confining than those we know not we're in. So the question then is, what, what imprisons me? And one of them is the need for certainty, which then allows me to finesse the difficult things of life. And if we're in service to life, we're going to constantly be finding that we have to leave what we thought was known and clear in service to something that uh, takes us to a new place. But as I said, that's what gives us the journey. And this journey gets to be more and more interesting. That's not a bad thing to happen. 
Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's really an honor to have um, spoken to you today and I'm very grateful as I'm sure our audience is. Thank you, Ross, a privilege to be with you today and I, I wish you well. You have been listening to In Conversation, a podcast. Banyan Books and Sound.